Dear friends, brothers and sisters, good morning, reads this email. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will praise him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 42, verse 5. And goes on to say, life can often throw a lot of tough stuff at us, and our souls can often get downcast and disturbed. However, we must not remain in a place of self-pity or worry. We must rise up and put our hope in God. We must bring life to our soul through giving thanks to God, remembering who he is and what he has done for us. Today, rise up and find the peace, stillness, and the joy of heaven for your soul. Have a good day. (laughs) The email I got from a friend the other day, and it it might strike you in, in different ways. You might find it... Um, sort of bit off, off cuff, a bit trite after the video you've read. If I were to give you a little bit of his back history, it might change your mind on it, though. Um, Ed, who's writing, is someone I knew well at college. We were training to be vicars together. At 19, he'd had leukemia uh, when he was doing amazingly well in his hockey career. And he was at university. It looked like he was going to be able to play internationally. And uh, that, that all fell by the wayside. The treatment he had meant he probably would never uh, be able to have children, have fertility issues that were going to compound his life in different ways. For all sorts of different reasons, he couldn't find the right relationship to be in. And when I knew him, he was approaching 40 and still single. Uh, at some point after that time, he, he met a lovely girl who he married, and uh, even though they knew that they probably wouldn't be able to have children. Amazingly enough, they, they did have a child. But complications from his earlier illness meant that uh, things were going wrong with his speaking and his eating. And they had to make a hole in his neck and feed him through his neck. Uh, And he could only speak also in in this sort of truncated way. Eventually, he lost his job as a vicar because he couldn't be heard even with the microphone on. And he wrote, why are you so downcast? (laughs) Put your hope in God and praise him. Amazing guy. He used to tell me he was my mentor, a sort of self-appointed mentor <laughs> role. I don't know who inspired you, who you maybe you said when uh, Mike was asking, who, who inspired you earlier on in our time? Who's sort of kept you going in your life thus far? Job's at a point in his life where he really could do with someone helping him out, couldn't he? <laughs> could really do with a friend to say, Job, we can get through this. We'll do this together. Remember, if you were here last week, he's lost his status in the world, his business, his success. I don't know about you, but if I have a bad day at the office, if I get a few bits of criticism or it's half term and then there are less people around, I can go from thinking, oh, wow, I'm really good and my life's wonderful and I'm achieving lots to, oh, crikey, <laughs> I probably need a new job soon. <laughs> I have a load of my identity tied up in status and in achievement. How about, how about you? It's hard to tell until it gets taken away, isn't it? If you're faced with redundancy tomorrow, if you're in work, or or some other cutting off of something, how would you deal with it? Job's faced with the annihilation of everything he's built. That was last week. This week, he's now faced with ill health. That's going to make no one want to come anywhere near him. The sort of ill health that ostracizes you from society warts and boils all over him, something you can't hide away. You can't cover it up with makeup or with clothing. You're just stuck, obvious, a sort of 
Oh, look at Job. (laughs) The gods can't be smiling on him. What's he done to deserve that sort of figure? And on top of losing his health, he's also effectively lost his spouse. (laughs) She turns to him and says, Oh, for goodness sake, die. (laughs) Curse God and die, and I'll go down to my grave too, a widow. (laughs) Whatever camaraderie and mutuality they've had has just been ripped apart. As I think I quoted last week, someone said, it's better to have loved than lost, but never to have loved at all. And the response was, try it. A horrible ripping apart of a partnership, going, I can't do it, and you should give up too. A tough place Job finds himself in, isn't it? And a tough place for us to try and work out what is the moral of the story. Job says, well, it's God who gives good and God who gives bad. Why shouldn't we accept both from him? Seems an extraordinary position to get to. And last week we were looking at how quickly he seems to resolve his issues. And I was saying that actually, in some ways, he's not really the model for us. When we go through difficulties, actually we need to shout about it. We need to be angry about it. We, we almost need to go through times of depression and isolation and bargaining. And we looked at how even Jesus did many of those things on his way to the cross. And sometimes it's just right to shout out that this isn't right. Why is it right to do that? Because the God who made the world made it perfect. He's going to be perfect eventually. And when his representative Jesus came into the world, everything he did was perfect. (laughs) He didn't just look at sickness and go, oh, that's a shame. Inch'Allah. (laughs) It's the will of God. No, he did something about it, didn't he? He changed it. He transformed it. And the promise we have is that that's what he's going to do eventually as well, forever. So that's the sort of God we've got. And we were saying that Inch'Allah is a sort of sub-Christian understanding of what the sovereign will of God is. But this week I want to take us to where, where Ed is in many ways, a place of acceptance towards the end of the grieving cycle. Of course, if you read the intervening chapters in the book, you'll see that Job goes through a whole process of the grieving cycle in the coming chapters, rallying against God, doing all the things I was saying he ought to have done last week. It all comes out in the end. You can't hold it down too long. You have to externalize some of the frustrations and anger in you or it eats you up. But here today we see the fruit as well of the place he eventually comes to, of subversive acceptance of a situation subversive acceptance of a situation how good are you at accepting life around you i've been moved to pick up a great book um caroline might be aware of this i'm um, sharing the darkness by sheila cassidy she works in the hospice movement among many other things where she's worked in the, the realms of suffering and pain for some time In a very moving chapter in this book, she talks of different Christians that she's met. Some Christians who are all about there's a cosmic battle going on, um, and there's good and there's bad, and if we pray hard enough and if we claim the right things in the name of Jesus, then we'll conquer the difficulties. Um, God's not really totally in control. He's just losing a little bit, and our prayers will tip it over the edge. (laughs) Our prayers will work. And other Christians that she'd met who were over here saying, God's in charge of everything. And we don't have to worry because he knows what he's doing. 
This is a third group as well. You might put them here, who are the sort of the deists, the watchmaker God. <laughs> God wound up the universe. Unfortunately, he was blind, a blind watchmaker. <laughs> and then just let it tick on. And through natural selection and other processes, things just happen. And God's not really seeing and he's not intervening. He's just in the background somewhere. I don't know which of those three caricature positions you relate to most. Maybe a fusion <laughs> of them. But which God you choose makes a huge difference to how you'll deal with suffering. Did you see? If you believe that there's a cosmic battle going on, and it just needs tipping over the edge, and it's sort of pretty evenly balanced, and maybe God's losing quite a lot of the time, there's a lot of emphasis on you striving and straining. If you believe that God is fundamentally and ultimately in control, at some point you can go, not inshallah, but God, your will be done. Rashida Cassidy in the hospice movement, she says, this is the place that people need to get to if they're going to die well. She tells a moving story of two people in the ward at the same time. One, a Christian um, lady from the church, lots of people came to visit her, and everyone that she met left away full of hope. They encountered her on her deathbed and came away believing in an afterlife, believing something was about to happen for her, believing that this was not the end. There was something radiant about her that transcended her situation. The other lady was a prostitute whose daughter had already signed up, was on the game, and her parents had long since left her. She had no visitors. She was angry, manipulative, and downright difficult to deal with as a patient. And at one point, it came to the point where that, that big question comes around, which uh, inevitably comes around. Uh, am I going to die? And she poses the question to Sheila and uh, some others in, in the room. And the nurses sort of fade into the background at this stage as, uh, as this hospice carer take, takes over. And she describes how the conversation then isn't a matter of just imparting words or even truth straight away. It's more like a dance where you're trying to work out how much the person can cope with and give them enough truth that you can. Do you see? So it's not just, a, yeah, you've got three weeks to leave. That's it. It's sort of a house thing if you've seen the program House. <laughs> It's much more trying to work out where they are and it's sort of a dance, but leading them to truth. Because at the end of the day, when you haven't got anything else, you want to know that someone there is going to tell you the truth no matter what. And she tells her the truth in a loving and kind way. And she says in the last two weeks of this lady's life, uh, she's transformed. She's accepted and she's accepting of her situation. She makes peace with herself. Maybe with God, who knows? And moves on. There is a very subversive place of acceptance of our situation in the Christian life. It's a big thing. Now we do, of course, believe that there is a cosmic battle going on, don't we? There's a devil and there's a God. When Jesus came into the world, the kingdom of heaven was there and the kingdom of darkness was there. And the kingdom of heaven forcefully advances against the kingdom of darkness. We see it in the ministry of Jesus. We see it in the Acts of the Apostles. See it again and again, forceful advancing into darkness. But what we're not presented with in the scripture, ever, is something where, where it's in balance. 
where it's out of control. And it just needs me to be the messianic hero to save the day. When David Watson, the great healing evangelist from the UK, was dying, um, some of the great healing evangelists from California came flying over super speed to try and save his life with their special anointed prayers. He died a year later. (laughs) But if you read his autobiography, You Are My God, it sort of almost makes sense as he self-reflects on his situation. It feels like God's saying, yep, that's, that's your course, David. That's, that's enough. And maybe any more of your life going on like this with your fame and your prestige it might take you out of kilter with me. It might unwind some of the great things we've done together. It might not be the, the answer. It's certainly how I read his story. The healing evangelist didn't work. <laughs> the sovereignty of God seems to have overruled it and done his wonders in the midst of the pain. So, well, that sounds a bit radical. Should we just then go, oh, God, whatever's happening is your will? No, we said last week, didn't we, that the inshallah thing's not right. It's not God's will that the world's gone to pot. It's his will that it was perfect. It's his will that it will be perfect. When Jesus comes in and invades and when the church does its thing, it brings about glorious things. But we live in this murky, messy time over here. Theologians call it the now and the not yet time. (laughs) It's still a lot of a mess. The kingdom of God's invading it, but it's not fully there yet. If you've ever studied medieval times, or even the prehistory of the UK before Christianity got here, you can only begin to appreciate the impact the gospel's had on our community today. The fact that we've got a police system, hospital system, schooling system, government, all these things, these great outworkings of gospel. Amazing. It's great that these things bring change. In society, through God's work in his church and other things in the world. But it's a messy situation. Each of us are going to die unless Jesus comes again. Occasionally we hear these vague reports of raisings from the dead in Mozambique. And even in the UK you'll hear stories of people coming back from the dead. Pretty much we all die at the end of the day, don't we? You go to our hospitals, they're full up. (laughs) <laughs> you hear some nice stories in church of people receiving some healing but there's a lot of sickness in the world isn't there and we all have to live through that and work through that and bleed through that and suffer through that ourselves what do we make of this well subversive acceptance I think says this firstly look at the life of Jesus Jesus subversively accepted his lot He subversively accepted his lot. Before Gethsemane, he goes through a huge amount of what we call the grieving cycle. Anger. He even curses a fig tree on his way to Jerusalem. He overturns tables. He's cross and angry at what's going on around him. He goes through a sort of depression. Oh, couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Again and again in Gethsemane. He sweats blood. He goes through agony. But then he says, not your will, but my will, and accepts it. And goes to the cross like a lamb uh, before his shearers, silent. He doesn't go to the cross kicking, struggling, going, it's not fair, it's not fair that I'm going to the cross. He goes to the cross triumphant, subverting it by accepting it and taking it on himself. He takes the suffering on himself and subverts the form. 
as we look at the outworking among the, the great saints. Now, what happens with St. Paul? He's beaten in a litany of ways to within an inch of his life. He has to travel around with a doctor, presumably to patch up his back every day. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's in utter agony. And yet he says these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that will far outweigh them all. These aren't trite words. the words of someone in prison writing. And perhaps most significantly of all, he talks about a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what the thorn is. It may be a physical impediment, might be a speaking impediment, might be something to do with his sexuality. We can imagine and surmise that he was probably married at the time of his conversion and was probably deserted by his wife at that time. It would have been normal for a man in his position to be married at that age that he must have been. And in 1 Corinthians 5 through 7, he talks about the other apostles having their wives and how he doesn't have one and how that's actually better in many ways for him, for his traveling itinerant ministry. But he pleads with God. It says, one time, take this thorn away from me, this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. Two times, God, take this thorn in the flesh away from me. He pleads with God. This is a man who sees miracles happen all over the place. He just prays and And people are healed. People are healed by his handkerchief. Three times he pleads with God, take this thing away from me. This miraculous healing man of enormous faith who's planted churches left, right and center. Take it away from me, God. And when he's prayed three times, he says, not my will, but your will be done. And realizes that God's given it to him so that He won't become conceited because of the surpassing revelations he's been given. There's something very subversive about acceptance. Of course, there are many times where we need to rail against injustice and sickness and death itself. Jesus was devastated by death. He hated it from the gut upwards when Lazarus died. But there's also a subversive place we get to of acceptance as well. Should we only accept good from God? <laughs> and as Job puts it, and not evil. Of course, we see in the upper stage, no, it wasn't in some ways directly from God. It's a more complicated story in the background. But how about us? What's the things that you've been rallying against God for? Or what may be the things in the coming years and decades that you're rallying against God for? Are you angry with God? Are you cross with God? Are you in depression? If you are, it's not wrong in some ways. It's a very healthy place to get to. To shout and scream, this shouldn't be God. I wish it weren't this way. But there's a place of maturity that we get to as we meander through the cycle. Which isn't just, oh, this is how God wants it to be. I'm stuck but rather more actively says, God, this is the way it is. You could part the Red Sea. You could move mountains. You haven't. Here I am. I accept this cup. Help me to drink it. I know I can't be tempted beyond what I can bear. And soul, don't be downcast anymore. Start praising your God because he deserves your praise. And I think that that probably is the big message of Job overall. 
The whole thing's not out of God's control. It's very much in his control. He's not caught in a cosmic battle where he's losing. He's not an absent watchmaker. He's in charge. He's in control. He's working out purposes Job has no idea about that are inspiring people three and a half thousand years later (laughs) to this day. And Job has plumbed to a place of radical acceptance. And radical acceptance changes everything. May God bless his word to us today. Amen.